The extent to which modern conservatism has declined in the last 10 years made me rethink my entire approach to um, the history of American conservatism. I was a much more sympathetic and I would say naive historian before 2016. Hello, I'm Jeff Cavaservice for the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled moderate majority of Americans drawing upon history, biography, and current events. And I'm pleased to be joined today by Joshua Tate, who I think has the distinction of being the youngest person I've ever had on the podcast, uh, and also the person who was most recently in graduate school. Uh, He received his PhD in history in 2020 from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His dissertation, which is a tremendous work of research and scholarship, is titled Making Conservatism, Conservative Intellectuals and the American Political Tradition. It is as yet unpublished, but you can find large segments of its arguments in articles that Josh has published in outlets such as The Bulwark, The Washington Post, The University Bookman, and The National Interest. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on your dissertation. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the kind words. And uh, you're welcome. And we are talking at the moment uh, across the oceans. You are in New Zealand. That's right. Um, I'm not sure it always comes through in my work, but I'm a native New Zealander uh, who has spent much time in the United States thinking and writing about it. Which uh, island are you on right now? Uh, The North Island, but I am from the South Island. Okay. Well, there's uh, any number of directions in which our conversation could go, but maybe we can start with you telling us something about yourself and how you came from New Zealand to North Carolina to study American intellectual conservatism. Uh, That is a a question I sometimes ask myself. Um, I think the the truth of the matter is I was in um, undergraduate in New Zealand uh, and I took uh, U.S. history courses. I was a history major. And I had excellent professors who uh, filled me with enthusiasm for the subject, for America, for uh, the American political system. And I think looking back now, I can see some of the threads, kind of institutionally speaking, that led me to study conservatism. One of the professors that I had, uh, he had a background working with the, the medicine program at Princeton, which has that conservative edge to it, um, overseen by Robert George. And uh, so I had those connections in the background, though I was unaware of them at the time. And I, in my final year of undergraduate, did some research on on Robert George and his role in shaping what I now think of as modern American conservatism, and particularly the, the religious component to it and the high-end religious component to it. And from that, I started to work backwards through American conservative intellectual history. And I think some, some personal biography makes sense here in the sense that, in, in, the, in the fact that around the time I had a, a religious experience and conversion uh, to Catholicism. And so I was very open to people like George. And so through uh, Robert George, I started reading First Things and discovered people like William F. Buckley and saw in them ideas that I was was very sympathetic to at the time. And I think I became increasingly interested in, and, and identified with conservative intellectual movement. And over time, I would say I, I became, as I went through graduate school and I guess saw the trajectory of conservatism over the past decade, became first a sympathetic critic and then probably a more straightforwardly knowledgeable critic of the American right. As I've seen what I thought were clear principles deteriorate perhaps and and my own understanding of the history of the movement and the history of the ideas and the way that they were shaped and how they are utterly inseparable from the political context, which often includes some, some quite nasty history uh, from the the ideas and principles that I once thought stood stood alone. So I've changed quite a lot since I started, but I think my interest in conservatism and in the characters and intellectuals that were critical in framing the terms that we understand it and still use today uh, has not changed. Okay. I was uh, quite interested to see that your faculty advisors at Chapel Hill included two business historians, Benjamin Waterhouse and Angus Bergen. 
mm. two historians of religion and the right, Molly Worthen and Michael mm. Lenish, and Catherine Turk, who studies women's and gender history. Uh, these people whose work I know and respect, yet their areas of focus wouldn't have seemed to have overlapped with yours necessarily to a large extent. Oh, that's a, it's interesting you put it like that. I think when you lay it out, especially the, the business side and the religious side, with some fudging, I think you can kind of see the bare bones of the conservative alliance or the the political um, bedfellows that make modern conservatism. I mean, religious history and the religious right are not the sole I guess, traditional or culturally conservative component, but it's a considerable part. And then business history, of course, informs perhaps the more libertarian uh, policy-focused and free enterprise side of, of what we now call conservatism. But I would say each of those scholars brought very important aspects to my work, or at least to, to overseeing my work and, and critiquing it, uh, particularly Ben Waterhouse brought a, who I think is a business, but also political historian, uh, brought a hard, harder edged political component, um, always encouraging me to link my work with institutions and, and politics and not just be what Molly Worthen called floating brain intellectual history, which I think can, can be a temptation and something that I'd suffered from, um, and probably still do suffer from. But, um, all of those historians brought something I think quite important including a, a critique that suggested perhaps even where I had emphasized ideas, perhaps it really was all about identity and privilege, which is, I think, an enduring debate in, quest, in, in studying the American right. So uh, it's actually, I think, a bit necessary to do a little discussion of the historiography here. There's a book that sort of defined the field for a long time, which was George Nash's The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1945. Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering correctly, that came out in 1976, but it was uh, heavily updated in 1996, and that's the version that I know. There I actually a, ran there into... Was a, sorry, yeah, there, was a sub, there was a subsequent uh, update in, I think, 2006, uh, which was the edition that I knew. Okay. Uh, I, I spoke with George Nash on a few occasions, and our approach in some ways was simpatico because uh, when I was in graduate school, I was Sam Tannenhaus's research assistant on the biography that he's still working on uh, of William F. Buckley Jr. And it makes a big difference both when you start to look at the intellectual movement on the conservative side and through whom you look at it. Uh, and Nash, in some sense, kind of took the wilderness narrative, which is that the conservative intellectual movement is in complete disarray after World War II, and that William F. Buckley starts National Review and builds it into this coherent movement in the process, sanitizing conservatism of some of its darker aspects. Uh, but that actually has been very much of a minority view in a lot of the historiography that has sprung up since. So I wonder how you positioned your approach to this topic. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think it's exactly as you lay out in the sense that sort of 2010, 2011, 2012, there was a big push by historians of the right and of conservatism to conceptualize it as something that fit into the broader trends, the deep currents of American history. And note that, you know, the emphasis on individual liberty, on the free markets, on minimizing the state, all of these things had more considerable purchase in the American public and with politicians than Nash uh, and movement conservatives who followed his line said about Buckley uh, and and the movement that coalesced around him, in effect arguing they were knocking on an open door or they were building on um, something that already had plenty of purchase. It was simply up to them to repackage it and resell it to the American people. And I think um, that is certainly that is certainly true. Those, I think, broader cultural and political structural factors exist, existed and, and probably continue to exist. But I think from the perspective, and I think Nash gets this right, from the perspective of Buckley and his um, and his allies and, and co-combatants, I guess, in, in the political conflict, they certainly saw themselves as deeply isolated. And I think it is fair to say that the, the core ideas that we associate with movement conservatism of free enterprise 
whatever that means. And I know there's been a lot of work unpacking that cliche, um, but the, the core ideas of free enterprise and the limited state were, I think, in disarray and complete and undermined um, as a result of the depression and also as, as a result of the Second World War. Another complicating factor is the position of isolationism within all of this um, sort of pre-depression, pre-World War II isolation was the default or close to the default position of the American right. And then as a result of the Cold War, it spent a long period being kind of verboten on the right and is now perhaps resurging. And we're, as, a, as some people have argued recently, cycling back to a, a conservatism, a, a right-wing politics closer to the 1920s than, than movement conservatism. But essentially the argument I'm making here is that while these deep currents of American politics existed, they were not felt by Buckley and, and those like him. They felt very much out in the wilderness. And even though they were able to effectively capitalize on existing networks and existing ideas, it did not feel like it to them. Uh, that might be a little bit of an experiential argument more than anything else, but it, that was their lived reality. And they did suffer from getting funds uh, to launch their magazines or find uh, places to, to publish and so on. And some of that was the opportunities and some of that was their own connections and, and talent, but that was their experience. So you have a, a review coming out uh, of Matthew Continetti's recent book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. And mm -hmm. he chooses the 1920s as his starting point. And although he does focus on uh, writers principally, uh, he's also taking in not just the conservative movement, not just the Republican Party, but the right writ large. So what are some of the advantages one gets by focusing more specifically on conservative intellectuals as you do versus taking that kind of wider focus that Matthew Continetti takes? Well, I think I should, should start by saying that the wider focus is essential. The conservative intellectuals that I write about, they don't exist in a vacuum. They do exist in this broader context, in this broader um, political coalition and, and set of actors. So to treat them in isolation, which I think has often happened, runs some serious risks, including basically it's the, the floating brain intellectual history I referred to earlier, where you can have these, these actors and treat them as if they're purely existing on a, on a plane of thought and purely existing in response to ideas and arguments uh, and, you know, does the most powerful argument or the most successful argument win out and shape important issues? And is their response to, for example, segregation shaped by deep principles or is it shaped by something else? And, and I think treating intellectuals in isolation runs that risk. So it is important to ground conservative intellectual history in deeper and wider politics. The risk it runs, and I think Continenti runs into this, is that there's far too much for one one scholar or writer to cover in, in a book. And um, especially the first two-thirds of, of Continetti's book, you're, you're traveling at such a pace. He works so hard to cover so much of the past hundred years of history that you only get snippets. You know, you get half a paragraph on the Southern agrarians and there are full books written on them. You get a half a paragraph to cover, not just, or, you know, you get a couple, maybe a page to cover, not only the Ku Klux Klan, but other very various um, fascist or, or quasi-fascist organizations from the period. And it's not enough to simply describe those organizations or those types of groups without drawing complicated links and, and, and showing the relationships. And unfortunately, I think Continenti suffers by ambition of scope trying to cover too much. So the challenge, I think, for anyone writing on the right is is one of scope and one of uh, putting it all together. And I wouldn't say that my work is perfect in this in this regard, but that is always the balance one has to strike between coverage and the relationships on the right and also being able to tell your story pro properly. So to ask you a big sweeping question, uh, what do you see as the American intellectual conservative project as having been in this post-1945 period? I would say that um, sort of in, it, it happened and it existed in, in stages. The first, I think, would be 
drawing together and unifying and rehabilitating the anti-liberal or liberal critical factions or, or groups or, or persuasions that existed, um, drawing them together in opposition to the prevailing New Deal consensus and any sort of liberal cultural mores that existed on an elite level and then and then spread out into the broader population. So drawing those those together into something coherent and united um, and rehabilitating the ideas, often using kind of European philosophy or, or religious or, or um, philosophical tradition to try and give those um, ideas credibility and, and prestige after being discredited, as I say, by um, the Depression and the Second World War. And then a process of institution building, uniting those ideas behind something that was politically effective, a, a discourse that was powerful and effective at winning votes or winning politicians um, to their side. And then ultimately, a actually, to take a step back, I would say that the way that these ideas and these factions coalesced, you're often talking about conservatives who believed in some sort of moral transcendent uh, framework and a and an, an ordered social hierarchy or, or social system based on that transcendent framework. And then you're often talking about libertarians with a kind of free market, anti-state type perspective. And those there was a lot of gray area and blurring in between the two. And so when I talk about bringing these two or, or factions into coherence, it was m- merging those ideas into something that we recognize today as conservatism. And one of the things I argue in my dissertation is that the way that that happened in effect, prioritized, at least in the policy space, uh, libertarian free enterprise ideas that became the default policy and political perspective of these groups, and then relegating conservative in the sense of, you know, traditional cultural mores and that sort of thing into the cultural space with the assumption that freedom and, and the limited state would lead to a natural flourishing of those conservative mores that, um, that the thinkers and activists wanted. And that's led to kind of the the Reagan era fusion type conservatism where you had um, where you had libertarian politics, libertarian policies with kind of a cultural or sometimes half-hearted cultural push for conservative culture. But that I think has broken down over time. And one of the the longstanding arguments was that this was all held together by anti-communism, which I think is half true. And the the concern or the the belief, and I think Sam Tannenhaus has made this argument, that conservatism would crack up once anti-communism disappeared as a uniting factor. But I would say that anti-communism has proved to have been half the uniting factor, but more than that, I would say a generalized anti-leftism and specific anti-liberalism has united the right. Uh, and, and over the last two decades, we've seen a breakdown of the kind of modus vivendi, the, the hierarchy that places libertarian policy outcomes above conservative cultural uh, mores into to something that we're seeing today where there has been a, a push, perhaps an aggressive push to have um, conservative culture as a policy and political outcome, not just uh libertarian politics that's simplistic i think there's there's more to it than that but that's kind of the broad trajectory that i see on the right does that make sense it does make sense you know those of us who research conservatism know a lot of uh the usual quotes that come up almost by heart but not everyone listening to this podcast will so i think it's actually worth going back to lionel trilling's famous uh quote in the liberal imagination in 1950 uh, in which he says In the United States at this time, liberalism is not only the dominant, but even the sole intellectual tradition. For it is the plain fact that nowadays there are no conservative or reactionary ideas in general circulation. This does not mean, of course, that there is no impulse to conservatism or to reaction. Such impulses are certainly very strong, perhaps even stronger than most of us know. But the conservative impulse and the reactionary impulse do not, with some isolated and some ecclesiastical exceptions, express themselves in ideas, but only in action or in irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas. Um, and that was really, you know, the uh, the quote that launched a thousand mm-hmm. yeah. uh, resentful conservative would-be intellectuals to prove themselves. Um, but I do think, you know, you point out at the beginning of your dissertation that liberalism overwhelmingly dominated the American political scene uh, in every dimension in the post-war era and that the conservatives honestly had reason to believe that they were in the wilderness at that time. 
Yeah, their political uh, lodestar, or at the time, uh, Robert Taft, the senator and, and perennial presidential candidate, he described himself as a conservative liberal. I mean, which which goes to show that, you know, as I say in the dis- dissertation, you know, they were all liberals at that stage, except for the ones who began to consciously think of themselves not as liberals. And that was an ongoing project. Um, Buckley wasn't calling himself as a conservative, wasn't calling himself a conservative at the outset of his career. Hayek famously, you know, had the the keynote address, uh, why I'm not a conservative. And though he never reconciled himself to the term, he became obviously part of the the canon of of conservative thinkers as we think of them today. Is there a a podcast or a sub stack called Irritable Mental Gestures? I think it's one of those. (laughs) There should be. There should be. It's one of those great phrases. But it's, it's one of those phrases that I think captured a very specific moment in time you know, as I as I say with this Taft quote and others like them, uh, at the a very specific moment in time, right before McCarthyism, I think really kicked off, and right before all of the the I guess intellectual and and discursive work that I talk about in the dissertation to try and rehabilitate conservatism as an idea, not just by Buckley but by other other characters who have kind of a different sense of what conservatism might look at look like sorry one thing i will say and i think it's really important about that trilling quote is that it's been i think treated as something triumphalist or um you know the the closing statement of the high point of mid-century american liberalism but i think it's worth noting it comes out of a kind of lament trilling had some i think you could say conservative impulses within him, not not in the way that we understand the conservative movement, but I think on a personal level or on, a, on kind of a Matthew Arnold cultural level. And he was lamenting the state of liberalism as kind of a rote acceptance of elements of the Democratic Party and kind of a positivistic vision of what liberalism could be. And as a literary thinker and as a literary man, he was hoping for something richer and deeper and more thoughtful and creative and within or as part of that kind of dialectic he was looking for a a smarter and more thoughtful conservatism to challenge liberalism so that liberalism might overcome its a best form of its its enemy or its um a dialectical opponent and uh he wasn't he was i think lamenting these irritable mental gestures weren't something uh, more coherent. Arthur Schlesinger makes a similar argument around the same time. The great historian and, and Cold War liberal makes an argument around the same time that if we don't get a good conservative op- opposition, if we don't get a thoughtful and intelligent conservative opposition, we're going to get something you know, quasi-fascist that will turn these irritable mental gestures into a political movement. And I think he was thinking of McCarthyism, but I mean, it's, you don't want to overread the lessons of history, but you could also, you know, potentially look at the Trump, um, the Trump Republican party and compare it to the Republican party of at least parts of, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And although sort of the Bush era had serious problems, especially when you're talking about security and the war in Iraq, at least on a policy front, it considered itself a party of ideas and it was proposing legislation. Um, and, you had, you know, the reformacons emerging out of that, believing that they could seriously have a conservative but also civic impact on policy. Quite different in the way that they conceptualize themselves than the than the the Trump Party and even the intellectuals around it today. Very true. Um, you write about halfway through your dissertation that the American conservative intellectual movement has been superb at self mythologizing. <laughs> And part of the mythology is that William F. Buckley Jr., sort of de novo, created a conservative movement at, through the fusionist project. And you explain in your dissertation that you are going to both decenter Buckley, who's a relatively infrequent visitor to your pages, um, and also criticize the conservative self-pathology around fusionism. Can you explain what fusionism was and then why you think the sort of mythology is inadequate? Uh, fusionism, yeah, it's it's been it's been back in the the conversation a little bit, maybe a couple of years ago more so than now. But fusionism, as I've gestured at earlier, is this idea that there are constituent components of conservatism, 
that have come together in a fusion. It's a really a fusing of the libertarian persuasion and the conservative transcendent view of uh, morality and of the social order, uh, combining these two ideas, fusing them into something not only workable, but complementary. Often in Nash's sort of treatment of it, united by anti-communism, but it's really the fusion of the libertarian and traditionalist wings, I guess, of conservatism as they conceived it. Not only unified, but complementary ideas brought together by a shared emphasis on individual liberty and, and the idea of having you know, some framework like virtue within freedom or uh, freedom under God or something like that, something that marries freedom with transcendence. The second part of your question was about decentering Buckley, was that? Correct. Uh, yeah, I, I've been revising parts of my dissertation uh, lately, and it, you're right, Buckley appears, he's such an interesting character in a lot of ways. He's like this, you know, princeling from another conservative country who, <laughs> who appears and uh, all of the contradictions of conservatism seem to resolve themselves in his person. But I think he, he's such a figurehead that it's worth re- recognizing that he was not the font of conservative ideas. He was a very smart man and he was a very, very good articulator ideas, but I think he was probably more a high-level second-hand dealer of ideas rather than a theorist or thinker in his own right. And certainly within the conservative intellectual circle, Buckley was many things. He was a networker, he was a figurehead, he was a proponent, he was a gatekeeper in some respects. But I think in terms of the ideal ideological creation, he recognized that he was bringing people together and drawing on on greater, or, or yeah, I think he would say greater thinkers or deeper thinkers or people who were able to allot more of their time to thinking uh, through the problems of conservatism and through the problems of liberalism. And, and he, was, he was publishing them. I mean, he wrote tremendous amounts for National Review and, and for his, um, his columns, but he was also publishing other thinkers. And I was sp- focusing on that sort of second tier or second level of, of thinkers throughout the dissertation who did a lot of the, I guess, labor to justify conservatism and critique liberalism. You know, um, Buckley is important, even in your dissertation, in the sense that the traditionalist movement and people like Russell Kirk mm. uh, really did have serious incompatibilities with the libertarians. And uh they did not see each other as allies. They did not see each other as part of a movement. Uh, they would not have cooperated uh, absent an individual like Buckley and a magazine like National Review. Is that? Am I stating your position correctly? I think. I think yes. Um, certainly, they were incompatible. I think were these two political movements or political persuasions or whatever you want to call them, did they exi- should they have existed outside of a dominant form of, of liberalism or modern liberalism or progressive liberalism, I think they would have found very little to, to unite on. They both opposed socialism. They both opposed modern liberalism as a, the thin end of the wedge of socialism. But I think inherently there are many great contradictions within them. And in 1957, for example, I suggested Har- Hayek, was completely alert to these. He saw conservatism as uh, the opposition to change and backward-looking, while classical liberalism, what we more or less think of as libertarianism, was forward-looking and progressive. And so I think, yeah, they they were incompatible, and I think that's proven to be the case over time. I think it was, yeah, it was having a platform like National Review that helped bring these uh, people all together within the same boat alongside this broader opposition to liberalism. But I would say that through, you know, a comedy of the trenches and also just willing it to be the case, they did manage to find some sort of working coherence for a while. And I argue throughout the dissertation that the way, one of the ways that they did that, the way that, that they convinced themselves was by seeing one by saying conservatism is this combination of libertarianism and traditionalism and by saying it is, is so it became so but also by reading that complementarity and that perfection of a political order into american history and by saying here is our conservatism 
it is a balance of the best parts of libertarianism and traditionalism. It's a perfect balance that recognizes the frailty of of man and the need for government or order, but also recognizing that the state is overbearing and, and destroys freedom. And that balance is perfect. And look, here is the, the perfect exemplar of it in the Madisonian constitution. And it's this that we're trying to conserve. So increasingly, I argue, conservatives moved away from sort of European transnational conservative ideas. You've got Burke, talk, uh, sorry, Kirk talking about Edmund Burke. You've got this very potent Roman Catholic influence on a lot of these thinkers. Um, and then you've got European emigre uh, scholars who never fully identified with conservatism, but folks like Leo Strauss or, or Eric Vigalen providing sort of this intellectual firepower for the anti-liberal right. But increasingly, I argue the conservatives, the conservative intellectuals, the second tier that I was speaking about, grounded their sense of conservatism in American history and what it meant to do politics the American way. And in that way, I think we sort of, you know, make a, we, we sort of draw the circle between those deep currents of American politics and this post-war a sense of, of isolation and, and wilderness, looking to Europe, looking to elsewhere to rehabilitate right-wing ideas. But then having done that, looking towards the American past and, and reconnecting with those deep currents and making that claim about what it means to do American politics. And as a result of that, um, how liberals and progressives are in denial or opposed to the, the true American way of doing politics. You had uh, mentioned Russell Kirk. Uh, can you give a, just a brief portrait of who he was and what role he played in this early formation of the conservative movement? Yeah, Russell Kirk was not the first post-war intellectual to call himself a conservative, but he was the one, I think, to make the biggest splash uh, earliest. He was a, a working class or lower middle class guy from small town Michigan. He through a series of scholarships and um, hard work, went first to um, what was, I guess, the, the state ag agricultural school in Michigan and then to did a master's in Duke and eventually over to St. Andrews in Scotland to work on, on history. And through that process of study interrupted uh, by World War II, he developed this really strong conception of himself as a conservative who believed in organic order and gradual reform and maintaining what he called the permanent things in life. And he wrote quite a lot. Yeah, he wrote he wrote tremendous amounts on this subject and developed a sort of coterie of people that believed in, in Kirkian conservatism. But his biggest breakthrough was with a um, published version of his dissertation called The Conservative Mind. I think it was 1953. And it was this enormous extremely sympathetic history of Anglo-American conservatism um, from Edmund Burke onward. Uh, and it was published through a conservative publishing house, but it got an enormous five-page review in you know, the then dominant Time magazine, uh, I think through, you know, we'll go into the weeds about that, but it got this enormous uh, review. It became the surprise bestseller, which launched the idea of conservatism. His conception of conservatism was, I think, much closer to the traditionalist perspective of conservatism. And there was a period where his was the dominant idea of what conservatism might look like. But he was a Michigander and had had sort of old Republican uh, GOP uh, right sympathies. And that came through um, his personal politics. And it also came through, he read that into his his broader political outlook and found and built an alliance with, with William F. Buckley and others and was eventually, I think, subsumed into the fusion. You could sort of treat him as one wing of the fusion, the other being kind of Hayek or, or libertarianism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kirk comes across as a somewhat tragic figure in your dissertation, um, because it seems to me, reading your dissertation, that the libertarians essentially ate the traditionalists. And there's a quote, uh, again, from sort of the middle of the dissertation that I found interesting here. Uh, Lewis Hartz was a well-known scholar of the 50s who argued that the American tradition was liberal and that 
conservatives essentially were uh, defending the liberal order. And you're right here, Louis Hartz was essentially correct. The mid-century conservative intellectuals committed themselves to bourgeois liberalism. Unable to recognize it as such, they called it conservatism. Russell Kirk's hope for an authentic conservative alternative to liberalism was stillborn. However, the once discredited philosophy of old guard republicanism had a potent new branding and an incoherent but compelling rhetoric to attack the New Deal state. You want to just expand on that? Do I, am, I see you reading, am I reading your Kirk correctly here? I think um, certainly I, I think Kirk is one of the one of the tragic figures of my dissertation. I think there are a few, but I would say that in terms of a tragic arc, I would say so. And I, I deliberately constructed it that way, but one, because I see it that way, but two, because in the conservative mythologization that we've talked about a little already, this tendency to establish this conservative canon and mythologize their these figures, you know, erase their flaws and, and highlight their perceptiveness. I think Kirk absolutely comes under that that uh, rubric. He's treated one as this powerful progenitor of ideas, or at least just rediscoverer of ideas, perhaps. Um, and two, he's treated as an easy, natural, and coherent part of of movement conservatism. Whereas, if you look at his history, I think he 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 burned very brightly for a very brief period and then had um, dramatically diminishing returns before, I think, being sublimated or eaten by, um, I would say, yeah, the more libertarian conservative movement as it as it shook out. I would say that the dissertation, as well as trying to show the effort to ground conservatism in American history, it's also a history of the sublimation of traditionalism under under the libertarian persuasion. And then later in the later in the dissertation, you see the the real bitter discontents, the the successes of of Kirk, who absolutely resented the way that movement conservatism had gone. Uh, I think the most visible of those uh, was Patrick Buchanan, and I think we could trace to some extent elements of of present day Trumpism to that sublimation of traditionalism um, and the bitterness that it created. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something I found very interesting about your dissertation is that you begin the story of post-war conservative with the new conservatives. Mm. Uh, now, granted, there's a lot of people who've sort of, you know, gone under the new rubric, uh, especially or in the new, new right. right. Yeah. But this is actually a, a specific group of whom I would say the leading figure was Peter Virick, who was the first person, I think, to consciously call himself a conservative in a positive sense in this post-war period. Can you tell me something about the new conservatives? Yeah. Um, on the one hand, I'm very glad that I, I spent time writing about the new conservatives because I think they're an extremely interesting uh, group. And I do think they made a considerable contribution to American political discourse by rehabilitating the idea of being conservative and making it into something not just negative. And on the other hand, I, I regret the linguistic confusion it creates throughout the <laughs> dissertation where I have to be talking about new conservatives, Buckleyite conservatives, and, and so on and so forth. It's just, it is a real struggle. But the new conservatives are similar to Kirk, and Kirk was associated with them, but I think his personal politics were, were different enough that he ends up coming under the fusionist conservative, the Buckleyite conservative wing, but it wasn't immediately clear at the outset. The new conservatives, as you say, Peter Verick, but others like uh, John Hallowell and Clinton Rossiter, were a group of academics and writers who were consciously articulating a positive vision of conservatism right after the moment or even around the moment Lionel Trilling was saying that conservatism, there was no American conservatism. It was irritable mental gestures. Um, as, as Trilling was making that statement, America, I think was going into a period of cultural conservatism. I write about um, how this manifested in philo- philosophical spaces, religious spaces, and then in cultural ones as well, you have you know a return to the idea of, of natural law. Walter uh, Lippmann starts talking about natural law. You have a resurgence in orthodox or neo-orthodox theology. You have more people going to church. There's obviously the baby boom. There's kind of this conservative moment. Eisenhower gets elected as, as I think, one of the most conservative on a, on a um, personal and, and kind of small-c conservative-level politicians. Um, in the 20th century. 
And so the new conservatives were these uh, academics and writers who often, you know, very Anglophile, uh, were talking about a conservatism of shoring up the gains and the victories of modernity and of liberalism and protecting them against um, mass politics, against the threat of atomic warfare, against communism and against degradation. And they were kind of a, a centrist political movement who wanted to conserve the New Deal and give the New Deal and the modern Cold War liberal state basically make the modern Cold War liberal state something to conserve and something to be conserved and provide sort of a backbone and a ballast to liberalism. They saw, they often saw conservatism as a close partner and not an enemy of liberalism, one that gave it its strength, that kind of cut off the hard points or the, the faulty points of liberalism and made it something more stable. And uh, they had a brief vogue where they were the dominant understanding of what it meant to be conservative uh, before they were replaced by Kirk and then ultimately by, by Buckleyite conservatism. And uh, something, again, fascinating about your reading of the new conservatives is that they actually mattered, even though uh, the movement faded away fairly quickly and a number of the people whom I wrote about, like McGeorge Bundy and August Heckscher, uh, ended up as Kennedy Democrats. Uh, you say that they actually transformed the American political academy by legitimating conservatism as an explicit and conscious political ideology, and that this in turn facilitated a reading of liberalism as materialistic and the U.S. past as conservative. Uh, and this actually benefited not them, but the right-wing political movement that they opposed in many respects. Uh, yeah, exactly as you lay out. They spent a lot of time and, and energy justifying conservatism rehabilitating the concept of being conservative as something that didn't just mean ipso facto, um, you know, a rugged individualist capitalist uh, who opposed who opposed um, the Democratic Party or something like that, or, or worse, a segregationist or something like that. They um, justified it as a legitimate political outlook. And then Kirk obviously built on that. And But also, yeah, the critiques that they leveled kind of from a a sympathetic perspective, not necessarily sympathetic, but from a from a perspective of, of, of enhancing liberalism and making liberalism more stable, the critiques they leveled at it of being materialist or um, or what have you, they thought their brand of conservatism could fill the gaps there. But as I argue in the dissertation, the um, kind of the harder-edged conservatives, the Buckleyite conservatives, and uh, in some ways the Kirkite conservatives, they took those critiques and primarily used it to knock down liberalism rather than to build it up, I suppose. Yeah, you wrote again elsewhere that uh, basically what the Buckleyites did was that they took this sort of uh, attack or criticism of liberalism uh, and they used it essentially as a weapon against the New Deal, which they portrayed as an illegitimate eruption of uh, America's conservative traditions. Yeah, and, and you can contrast that with folks like Hallowell or Verick or um, Heckscher and McGeorge Bundy, who obviously found themselves compatible with um, either the New Deal or, or the New Frontier. You know, you don't necessarily uh, play sides in your dissertation, but it does seem that a generally positive role is played by conservatives such as Kirk and the New Conservatives and, and also the Straussites. Um, and a pretty negative role is played, even within the conservative movement, by other figures such as Wilmore Kendall and James Burnham. Hmm. Uh, I wonder what you found. I know what you found to be uh, pernicious about Burnham and Kendall, um, which was their tendency toward catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. um, and you actually said that that actually undercut their program, certainly in Burnham's case. C can you describe that a little bit more? Well, it's interesting. I, mean, I think it's it's probably true that I, I do end up putting a more negative spin on Burnham and Kendall, but that's it's I, I find that kind of funny because they're two of my insofar as you have favorite. You know, it's weird for a historian to talk about having favorite people that they study, <laughs> but I would say that uh, James Burnham 
and Wilmore Kendall are two of my very favorite people. And, and if you're well, they're, about, they're both they're both fascinating. Can you actually just give a brief portrait of both men? Sure. Yeah. So Wilmore Kendall, I'm actually uh, in the process of reading um, one of the first full biographies of Kendall by Christopher Owen at the moment. He's one of the you know, tremendously interesting figures of American history. He was sort of this son of a, a blind Oklahoman minister who was a went on to become a, a boy wonder he went to university uh, you know as a young teenager dropped out became a reporter went back to university won a Rhodes scholarship went to Oxford went around universities and also to Spain as a reporter and as a teacher then he entered uh, this is this is Kendall the younger he entered the intelligence community where he was a foundational figure of, of American intelligence uh, analysis before becoming a professor at Yale, uh, finally um, selling his or allegedly selling his um, tenure back to Yale uh, or taking a, a payment to resign, whichever way you want to spin it, he uh, and, and becoming this kind of house philosopher or would be house philosopher for American conservatism. The, the thing about Kendall is that he was extremely dynamic person and thinker, but he was beset by serious personal problems and he could not maintain good relations with even his closest friends or closest um, mentees or or, or even uh, wives until the end of his life. To save his life, he was just a and some of this was intellectual and some of this was personal. He would just burn bridges over principles or perceived slights uh, all the time. But he was uh, one of an intense, he was an intense thinker, an intense thinker about the American political landscape and its history, and a deep believer in a form of populist deliberative democracy. He believed in the, the power and the rightness of a community deliberating together to reach political conclusions and the um, the necessity of having small compu- small communities be- and the majorities within those communities being able to overrule the rights of others which led him so it's a, a populist democratic view that was almost a almost a fundamentalist view belief in in the power of the majority that led him to be very pro-McCarthy and later to be at a minimum circumspect and perhaps very opposed to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. I think you Um, say Buckley at one point in 1963 quoted him as having said that he was in favor of segregation for most uh, African-Americans and that his views on this had become more intense than they had been even in 1954 when Brown versus Board of education yeah. was passed. Exactly. And I think there's a there is debate about, you know, was this Kendall, you know, the Oklahoman with Southern roots who was a, a, a you know, a racist, or was this Kendall the rigorous thinker committed to principles? I probably come down closer on the principle side of things, although you can you can never disentangle people's, uh, especially mid-century conservatives' views on race from from their thinking entirely. But yeah, he thought his way into being pro-segregation on kind of democratic grounds at the height of the civil rights movement, which gives you the, the sense of how how both populist in the sense of a white populist and also how contrarian he was as a thinker. He died relatively prematurely and left this outsized gap in the kind of the, the history of, or the canon, the, the mythologized canon of the American conservative movement, in part because of his relationships, both friendly and um, hostile with Buckley, and in part because he was just such an interesting and contrarian character. And there have been efforts, I think, to rehabilitate or to rediscover his ideas, and Matt Continenti has been, been part of this recently. And I've sort of been skeptical about how well that would work but it's th- th- there are certainly resonances there um, in his thought that are, are worth tackling today. How about Burnham? James Burnham is almost the opposite of um, Wilmore Kendall on a personal level, and yet they have 
as I, I think I point out in the dissertation or elsewhere, that they have a very similar career trajectory. Although Burnham comes from at least a moderate degree of wealth and, and comfort in the, uh, I think, Chicago. But he's he goes to elite boarding schools. He studies at Princeton. He's a absolute um, Wunderkind. He teaches at um, NYU in philosophy and aesthetics, and is and during his uh, during the thirties and forties became uh, a fairly prominent and fairly highly regarded Trotskyist and uh, leftist thinker before he broke with Trotskyism and broke with uh, communism or yeah, dialectical Marxism entirely and became something of kind of a, a Machiavellian pragmatist and increasingly anti-communist right-wing figure. He, if you'll excuse the kind of fictional decoration, he reminds me somewhat of a Mentat from the Dune universe. <laughs> okay. I, I always think of him as, as Buckley's Mentat, but he becomes... Um, he was this, in his own right, he was this very rigorous thinker, Had a, wrote this uh, tremendously influential book on, oh shoot, you'll have to remind me of the, the title, on uh, the, um, the managerial revolution. Right. Uh, that, that basically supposes that there's a, a transformation in the way that society is going to be governed uh, away from bourgeois liberal democracy towards society organized a kind of a technocratic society in which the dominant social class will not be the bourgeois but will be the managers the the white collar class the technicians and flowing from that you know coming from this marxist background this is how uh, burnham thought flowing from that managerial revolution and the new dominant class there was going to be a new discourse a new justifying ideology of managerialism and that's a critique that's been of progressivism and, and I guess, socialism or the, the, the changing manifestations of those that's been picked up subsequently by neoconservatives or someone even like Wesley Yang. I think you could see um, his, his ideas, you could see parts of them in, in Burnham's framework. But anyway, well, you, also, uh, you also see people on the left relying oh, on a similar PMC framework. Sure. 100, 100%. Yeah, it's it's an idea that has a lot of currency. Uh, and I think in some ways was quite prescient. And Burnham's predictions were picked up by um, George Orwell and I think informed 1984 far more than anyone recognizes. At the same time, Burnham also made a lot of predictions that didn't come true. Um, some quite dramatic ones about world historical events. He was so prone to, he was such a, a logician that he would develop his premises and then extrapolate dramatically from them. And he wrote with such precision that he is a very overwhelming person, a very easy but overwhelming person to read. And, and, and I think this did a lot to damage his credibility, his predictions about, you know, the coming collapse of, of Russia and so forth. But he um, winds up becoming essentially Buckley's extremely able lieutenant and mentor and, and, and has a profound impact on the conservative movement, not only through his ideas, but also by managing and running national or not managing but running national review editing it uh, for large parts of the year and allowing buckley to have that sort of freewheeling figurehead role so uh buckley's to fear how it one might say um, <laughs> yes was very very intelligent uh you know had had this whole career before he joined national review Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, as you point out, uh, he is so dire in his warnings that liberalism is tending towards Caesarism, that the West is committing suicide, um, that this, in effect, presents conservatives from engaging with the left and even the yeah. center, and it prevents themselves from moderating. And, and this apocalypticism essentially deprives the right of the ability to govern, ultimately, as you see it. Yeah, I think this is something that I... I saw in your work and I drew on, I think explicitly, this rule or ruin idea. Mm-hmm. And I found that that perspective comes through clearly, not only in, I think, the second tier type of, of thinkers um, and, and the activists and even politicians like Goldwater. If you look at Goldwater's 1960 speech for um, in support of Richard Nixon, he strikes some extremely dire and, and catastrophist notes. But I found this tendency even at the highest levels of, of conservative thought, the, the figures they hold up on the highest pedestal, namely uh, Burnham and Kendall, 
they have this tendency to see liberalism as entirely corrosive or as even even you know to the point of being the driving force of the western civilization's uh, suicide as burnham frames it later on burnham in the way he writes he will step back a little bit and and take on more of a descriptive analytical mode um mm-hmm. as if it's not really his position but a position that's objective in fact but i think of course you know that comes out of his brain he's the one making those arguments so even if he's not necessarily saying we must sound the alarm he sketches such a framework that it's obvious that what he's saying is we must sound the alarm but yeah there's this this catastrophist impulse that finds ultimately i think every part of of modern liberalism you know for them it was the new deal plus you know accretions the truman through through kennedy and then i think uh, Burnham also had a bit of a, a more of a global perspective. He started thinking about decolonization and, and things like that. Uh, but he saw all of this as, as, or, or the two of them saw liberalism, the entire liberal project, as something that was was destructive either to um, authentic governance and the people for Kendall or for Western civilization and liberty for Burnham. And the argument that I make is that having those presuppositions based even at the highest levels of thought totally preclude any sort of of governance because there is no room for compromise no room for um, give and take no room for back and forth it's only opposition or death there there seemingly was a a greater degree of pragmatism displayed by a lot of the people who were more on the economic and libertarian side Mm -hmm. Um, but you point out that one of their characteristic flaws as well was their sort of instinctive justification of hierarchy and privilege um which led them to accept the rule of economic elites and enormous degrees of inequality. Um, And it also caused them to accept, for example, uh, racial disparities and even perhaps segregation itself as as natural. And Mm. and this is a a problem that it seems has carried on to the present day generation of conservatives. Yeah, I think I was thinking about that question specifically um, in relation to Corey Robin's work. Um, Uh, Corey Corey Robin, who I... I find a lot to agree with in his broader take on what conservatism or the right means. He treats it as um, a defense or sort of a reflexive defense of privilege uh, or power once that power has been challenged. And one of the critiques he often gets, and I, I don't, I, I have, I have issues with how he shows that, but I think as an insight, I think that's quite useful. And you can find points where folks like Wilmore Candle almost eerily uh, echo his description of what the right is when he describes the right. But one of the the critiques thrown at Robin is that, well, you know, libertarians or just any any definition of the the right that treats it as involving hierarchy to some extent, people will respond, well, how does that, how do libertarians come into that? Don't they believe in, you know, just the market? Isn't it just natural or uh, isn't, aren't we talking about liberty or freedom and equality under the, the market? And I think once you step back and recognize that the market does create these hierarchies, it becomes very clear that libertarianism is at the very least comfortable with a sense of hierarchy and naturalizing that sense of hierarchy. And so it becomes clear how libertarianism fits under this broader sense of the right. If we understand the right is to be a defense of hierarchy, I'm drawing on uh, Norberto Bobbio here, drawing on uh, a defense of hierarchy that assumes it either to be salutary or natural. Uh, You also had an interesting critique, though, of the cultural conservatives or traditionalists, Mm -hmm. which to some extent plays into some of the debate that we've seen around national conservatives and even integralists. You wrote that anti-statism hampered the creation of a conservative philosophy because without the federal government, the cultural conservatives were just left to hope that their favored practices endured, and Mm -hmm. they didn't. But, you know, what was kind of interesting about that is that you kind of went on to suggest that maybe they shouldn't have had that aversion to federal power. Maybe they actually should have relied on the coercive power of the state to preserve uh, the conservative institutions and traditions that they liked. Is that what you had in mind or was this something else? I think that is the upshot. I'm not necessarily advocating for it, but I think that is, you know, an upshot. If we look at conservative efforts, conservative governments elsewhere, I think, you know, we've seen 
very obviously attempts to use the state to hold up institutions, often often the church or other institutions, and maintain conservative positions. And I think, you know, it could be argued that the traditionalist type conservatives in the American setting missed a trick because they were, you know, ultimately Americans and they believed in in limiting or, you know, having a, a liberal conception of what the state was. And maybe you could argue they should have have taken a more uh, proactive approach about using the state. They did in some cases, and I think we can look to segregation, uh, not at a national level necessarily, although there were national politicians arguing um, for segregation, but using the state to enforce conservative, racially conservative social mores. Uh, so we see that throughout the South. Um, what I would say, and, and this, is, this is an argument um, about using the state to produce conservative outcomes. This is an argument that's been taken by the integralist right or by more nationalist conservatives. Uh, As you know, in the last uh, five, 10 years, I would say that the history tends to suggest, and I I drew a parallel with this, with, uh, for this in the bulwark recently, history tends to suggest that uh, when states and regimes rely on state power to enforce conservative cultural standards, such as in Francoist Spain, the outcome is usually, or, or in Portugal, as I've argued elsewhere, um, the the outcome usually tends to be when those state powers are released, the reaction in the opposite direction undermines whatever it was those conservative states were attempting to hold up, perhaps even worse than, than the traditionalist sort of let's um, fight this on a cultural level um, approach works. I think that's correct. In fact, I actually was reading a, a history of Ireland, which obviously was not a uh, authoritarian state like the ones you're describing, let alone- But it still like, had the deeply entrenched church. It did. Uh, and it had those kind of almost unchallengeable uh, conservative social norms. And that meant that when the reaction came against it, uh, they fell almost entirely. Ireland is now one of the more secular societies and, and an anti-clerical society more than a sort of just post-Catholic, uh, post-Christian society. So I think there is some danger there. You know, um, you have actually shown in the dissertation an appreciation for some of the best thinkers and writers uh, and, and thoughts on the conservative side. And I wonder how you feel about the current state of conservatism, given that perspective. Do you feel that there are the good aspects of conservatism that perhaps are, are coming back? Or is it more or less a tale of a degradation and a sort of slide from what had been good about the movement. I think, you know, today I would say there are, there are some, there's the emergence of some very interesting ideas, which is not necessarily to say good or ones that I would support, but interesting ideas uh, that could have powerful and perhaps dangerous ramifications and arguably already have on on the trajectory of American politics. But I would say, I think ultimately, you know, in graduate school, you're, you're warned not to write declension narratives. And I don't think I do <laughs> entirely, but I, I, I would certainly say that um, the last 10 years of the history of the American right has been, for some people, a seriously disabusing moment where all of the, you know, the belief in principle and moderation and perspicacity and thoughtfulness in politics has seemingly gone out the window. And I think, yeah, I would say that the the extent to which modern conservatism has declined in the last 10 years made me rethink my entire approach to mm. um, the history of American conservatism in a way that put much more weight on identity and prejudice and privilege and catastrophizing and I think post facto rationalization than I had beforehand. I was a much more sympathetic and I would say naive historian before 2016. It's interesting that toward the tail end of the dissertation, Samuel Francis emerges uh, as a kind of prophet of Trumpism, which is also how Matthew Rose in his uh, Mm, sort of study of post-liberalism has also placed him. Yeah, I think I think so. I was reading. Um, so this came out of Paul Murphy. I originally, I mean, I was aware of Francis. I was familiar with him, even as someone who got a PhD at the University of North Carolina. Um, 
you know, I have that connection to him. So I was familiar with who he was and how he had become one of those, you know, characters written out of the conservative movement, written out in air quotes, because I think it's never as simple as that. But um, I had this sort of, I don't know, I don't want to over dramatize it, but I had this startling moment when I was reading uh, Paul Murphy's study of Southern agrarianism. It's it's older now, I think the early 2000s, but it's an excellent history. And it goes on to talk about the paleoconservatives who are, I would frame them as the bitter um, successors of Russell Kirk, the ones who Kirk sort of lived out a happy, if not totally fulfilled life as a as an early founder of conservatism, but his successors were deeply embittered by um, how they wound up. And Francis was, I think, part of that circle. And uh, the paleo, often, often Southerners, and Francis is in there talk and and Murphy, you know, finds some of his key essays describing Middle American radicals and the need to have a nationalist state that had a radical opposition to liberalism and that you know the conservative movement as we had understood it was full of beautiful losers and with his term which actually now has kind of now i think about it has sort of a trumpian ring to it um <laughs> but uh they were beautiful losers and they had they never had i think the stomach for the type of politics the type of hard-nosed materialist politics that it's needed to fight and um I was reading that and explicit, you know, explicitly the the types of language, the types of issues he was pointing to, often immigration and, and racial, and the types of coalition he was talking about, where I thought, I was reading it in 2016, I thought they were fully captured by the, the movement we were seeing behind Donald Trump. And I, I think a lot of people, I'm certainly not the only one to have seen this connection, as you say, Matthew Rhodes, Matthew Rhodes, um, but a lot of other people have, have recognized, I think, Francis and Francis was a speechwriter and an advisor for Pat Buchanan and you know, wrote pretty widely on a lot of topics. And, and I, so he, he's a prophet. And I think someone who was prescient about a possible direction of conservatism or the right. Uh, and he also, I think, had some influence on that direction, even if his own life ended as a, you know, it ended with him in, in isolation, just just discarded and disregarded. I think his ideas and, and his impact, especially on Buchanan, um, and ultimately through Buchanan onto um, perhaps Trump, I, I think have had much more of a half-life. What's past is prologue, hmm. which is why, although you can't see it, I'm making irritable mental gestures right now. <laughs> um, Joshua Tate, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, congratulations again on your dissertation, Making Conservatism, Conservative Intellectuals, and the American Political Tradition. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Ingenieri, and the Scannon Center in Washington, D.C. Music